0: Bobby Smith, and I'm your 10 o'clock teacher this morning, and my uh, teaching is going to be on Sukkot. Since we're in the f- middle of our Sukkot festival, that is appropriate, and um, typically this would last a little longer, but I will try to get this done in the, a time period allotted here, maybe I'll go a little bit long. So let's begin with a prayer, as we always should. Alvinu Shabbat Shemayim, which is our Father in Heaven. Father, thank you so much for this day, for the rain that we need so badly. Rain is a blessing, Father, and during the period of Sukkot, we pray for rain, and it's, a, it's, it's something we've lacked for a while, and it's, it's a blessing to see it, Father. Thank you for this season and the, uh, the turning of the season. Thank you for the, um, the knowledge and the ability to come before you, own your moedim, to draw near to you. Father, open our hearts and our minds this morning. Touch us with your word that we may be enriched. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. So most of this teaching is uh, things that I researched in Art Scroll, the Mazora series. It's called Sukkos. I also researched uh, the three festivals, which is another Art Scroll book, and also insights of Sifas Emei's. We'll merely scratch the surface of all the different lessons of Sukkot, but it's, it's, um, it's still an interesting time of year. The cycle of the three pilgrimage festivals, Passover, Shavuot, and Sukkot, have two scripturally assigned roles. Roles that are not only different, but sometimes seem kind of contradictory. On the one hand, they recall the formative, miraculous events of Jewish history and are constant reminders of the reason for Israel's being and its continued existence. In this sense the festivals are like cosmic, lofty, intensely spiritual phenomena that bind the Jewish calendar with the Creator and the moving force of the universe. On the other hand, The scripture relates the festivals to the seasonal agricultural society, like earthly, things like springtime and harvest and the ingathering of crops, human things. On this level, the festivals seem diminished, as it were, from their sublime guidepost of a heavenly thoroughfare to merely commemorative, seemingly mundane celebrations of just our earthly agricultural cycle. They seem to surrender their grasp on eternity and become a mere reminder that the seasons come and go and the land never yields its hold on those who work it and are in turn its servants. Human existence involves a constant tension between what man is, his values, his goals, concepts, visions, and his self and the environment in which he lives. He's affected by everything around him. Figuratively, this condition is likened to the six directions. To did this little slide for the six directions. East, south, west, north, above, and below. Just like what we do with the Lulav. That surrounds every human being, wherever they are. The directions are influences that work on them consistently, persistently, incessantly. They are outside of man, a distance from his essence, but he is never free of them. They always surround him. The seventh factor is the placid center of it all, the inner man, who is the object of all these forces, but is not part of those forces. How well he succeeds in shaping and maintaining his identity in accordance with this spiritual, spiritual dictate of his soul is the challenge and the purpose of life. What is the inner self within those external factors? It is the Sabbath. For on the seventh day God rested as it were to prove that creation had not been could never be divorced from Him and His holiness. After every six days of turbulence the reminder returns. The holiest of days proclaims that in six days, God created the untiring mainspring of activity, but on the seventh day, he called a halt to the sprawl of productive labor and reminded man that there is a point, a center, a purpose to it all, so that man would remember that God lavished blessing and potential upon him so that he would utilize the universe to do his will and to make it a reflection of His glory. It is in this sense that the Torah said, God blessed the Sabbath day and hallowed it. Because on it, God abstained from all of His work. That was in Genesis 2-3. As the Midrash and the commentators explain, the Sabbath is the source from which all blessings come to the universe. God created the world so that man could make it a physical reflection of His holiness, and the Sabbath is the conduit through which sanctity and blessings come to the earth. Spring harvest and the gathering have no meaning unless man turns his wit and muscle to capitalize on the opportunities that nature gives him. The coming of spring is an indication that God smiles at man and offers him an opportunity to free himself from the shackles of his wintry discontent. The time is opportune for man to aspire to freedom and a new beginning just as Israel did centuries ago when it burst free from the physical and spiritual bondage of Egypt just as the earth does every year when it shrugs free from the frost and lethargy of winter recognize spring for what it truly is a signal that the time is right for spiritual renewal we should also remember that when we come into a new biblical cycle like we're about to we're beginning a new spiritual renewal during the summer there is much left to do. The grain must dry in the sun and then be bundled, threshed, winnowed, and gathered. The fruit must be processed and prepared for storage or market. Not until the end of this productive and exhausting season can the farmer gather in his produce and truly rejoice in the success of his work. These three agricultural periods, spring, harvest, and end gathering are paralleled In the spiritual development of man and his nation. It also parallels the festivals. The Sabbath and the Exodus stand on the same plane. Each reminds us that God made an entirely new and unprecedented phenomenon. The universe and the nation that was assigned to bring fruition, the reason for creation. Clearly, the birth of Israel achieved heightened significance when the Torah was given on Shavuot. For without this most magnanimous of heavenly gifts, Israel's freedom would have remained an unharvested bumper crop or unrealized potential. In the wilderness, God enveloped and sheltered Israel with his clouds of glory to show him his way and to protect him as they followed it. Protect them as they followed it. Clearly, the presence of the clouds was a sign that Israel had risen to the spiritual plateau implied by God's all-enveloping protection. They were blessed and shown favor as they were gathered in by God in a national feat that would be commemorated eternally by the Sukkot festival. For in Sukkabus did I settle the children of Israel, God said. No other nation had ever earned such protection. Israel had completed the cycle It had formed spiritual nobility into its national existence. The promise of its springtime and the challenge of its harvest had been fulfilled as the nation gathered into God's exalting, protective, inspiring clouds. That year became a watershed and a model in Israel's history. What had happened once became the goal of every future year, every future historical cycle, for what had been accomplished once could be done again. Israel did not long maintain itself at that pinnacle. What nation or generation ever does? But it clawed its way back in an example of repentance that in itself became a model for all time. It's a lesson that we learn during this particular time of year is, is the lesson of repentance. Although most commentators identify the clouds of glory as a pillar of cloud that led the Jews by day and a pillar of fire that lit their way at night. Midrash Takuma gives a further definition as the Talmud so often does. There were seven clouds. The Midrash records one for each of the six directions. East, south, north, west, above and below. And the seventh which led them by day and by night. From every direction, man is simultaneously seduced and threatened. From the physical dangers, God can protect him as he protected Israel in the wilderness. But only man can save himself from temptation. Only his inner self can provide the desire and the strength to live up to God's expectations. Man's inner self can climb to the goal set by its heavenly soul or can tumble after the desires cultivated by its animal nature in its infancy Israel was shown sacred guides a pillar of cloud by day and a pillar of fire by night that such guides were provided did not compel Israel to follow them any more than the offer of the Ten Commandments forced Israel to accept them to the contrary Israel received the law because it wanted to and it followed God's clouds of glory because it wanted to assimilate into the being that those clouds represented, everything that those clouds represented. The Jewish people built themselves little huts despite the presence of the heavenly clouds to protect themselves from the daytime sun and the nighttime chill of the wilderness. Those of you that were here on uh, Thursday, we experienced that chill. When leaving his home in favor of his sukkah, the believer remembers that his survival like that of his forefathers, ultimately depends on forces beyond his personal control. Even in modern times, with its massive construction and elaborate safety techniques of all these beautiful buildings that we have, the combination of human destructiveness and the ever-present threat of natural disaster make plain that man is no safer in that refuge than in his fragile sukkah. Rabbi Samson Raphael Hirsch finds the aspect of sukkah to be both sobering and encouraging. To the powerful and wealthy, the sukkah says, Do not rely on your fortune. It is transitory. It can leave you more quickly than it came. Even your castle is no more secure than a sukkah. If you are safe, it is because God shelters you as he did your ancestors when they had but a booth to protect them against one of Earth's harshest environments. Let the starry sky you see through your sukkah teach you to build your castle upon a firm foundation of faith in God and see the benevolent gaze of God even when you look at its sturdy insulated roof. If you can do that, opulence will not bind you to the glow of God's will not blind you to the glow of God's mercy, blessing and benevolence. To the poor and downtrodden, the sukkah says, Are you more helpless than the millions of your ancestors in the wilderness without food, water, or permanent shelter? What sustained them? Who provided for them? Whose benevolent hand wiped their brow and soothed their worry? Look around you at your sukkah's frail walls and at the stars you see through its rustling roof. Let it remind you that Israel became a nation living in such mansions. Those were palaces of the kingdom of priests and a holy nation. The homes where they became a great and godly nation, where they developed the faith that overcame fear and the knowledge that God's word was their guarantee for tomorrow, every tomorrow. Rabbi Bakhtiah carries this theme a step further. The temporary dwelling of your forefathers was, as they knew, intended to prelude to the most glorious of permanent dwellings, their own land where God's presence would dwell among them in his temple. Thus the Sukkah was an allusion to the impending greatness of the future. In this sense, our own Sukkah reminds us that that the suffering of exile is itself temporary that it too will give way to the redemption and the third temple and the messianic era. And as we know, this is all fulfilled by the coming of Mashiach ben Yehuda, our Lord and Savior, Yeshua HaMashiach. In his compassion and mercy, God provided us with memorials to the miracles he performed for our forefathers. How can we get an inkling of his miracles of yore? How can we who have never seen and cannot conceive of the clouds of glory, achieve an attachment to the sublime experiences of our ancestors. There in the wilderness, Israel was enveloped in the clouds of glory, enveloped in the clouds of glory. Today, we can wrap ourselves, as it were, in that memorial, the sukkah. Out of our homes, stripped of our security, without the things that spell safety all year round, we sit in our sukkah completely enwrapped in it. If we wish to perceive them we can sense the glimmers of holiness in the twinkling stars that intrude through the Sukkah. We can see the one above making us aware of his presence. The three pilgrimage festivals form a progression. From the birth of the nation on Pesach to the assumption of its mission on Shavuot to the successful completion of its task On Sukkot. Sukkot symbolizes the successful completion and ingathering of the harvest. Not only the earthly harvest, but the spiritual harvest. Israel has attained its goal. That is the greatest cause for rejoicing. And surely ample reason for the Torah to stress three times that it is the time to rejoice. And for the sages to incorporate into prayers on the day only Sukkot is the season of our gladness. Completion has another connotation as well. In the process of learning and developing knowledge, the final stage of wisdom is called da'at. That's the Hebrew word, da'at. It first comes from the spark of an idea, which is kokma. Then the idea is developed and applied. Its ramifications and implications are compared with known facts and other hypotheses. This process of research, development, and refinement is called bima, usually translated as understanding. Finally, when the new acquired knowledge is perfected and has become fully assimilated by the student, it is called da'at. It is instructive that the Torah insists that the performance of, of the sukkah, mitzvah, be, accomp- be accompanied by knowledge, da'at of what it represents. The Torah commands that all believers should dwell in a sukkah so that your generations will know, the key word is Yadu, will know from Da'at, the final step in the knowledge process. This requirement of knowledge is part of the mitzvah of the sukkah. One has not fulfilled it unless he has borne in mind the sukkah experience in the wilderness the festival agricultural human cycle must culminate in the conviction that the lessons it teaches are not only true but they have become basic to the one who performs and lives them." So this is not only true of the cycles, it's true of God's whole message to us. I mean, we, we live, our world is, is all about cycles. Sp- you know, winter, spring, summer and fall, every year it's a cycle same as the uh, festivals. We must realize that Hashem's fundamental purpose in taking us out of Egypt was to make us aware of his presence in our midst. Freedom from slavery by itself would have meant nothing without Hashem's presence, as symbolized by the appearance of the divine cloud just days after the Exodus. By associating Sukkot with the Exodus, we acknowledge that true liberty can be achieved only by recognizing God's presence in our lives. The days of awe, repentance, Rosh Hashanah and Yom Kippur are a time not merely of judgment but also of liberation from temptation and evil impulses. During the days of awe, every Jew or believer experiences a personal exodus as he is cleansed from all the defects that hinder his spiritual growth. This follows a recreation of the slavery experience in Egypt engendered by the fast of Yom Kippur and the awareness of the judgment he faces on Rosh Hashanah. It is only fitting that at Sukkot, which celebrates the appearance of the divine cloud or presence of God after the Exodus, should come immediately after the Days of Awe, which recall the Egyptian slavery. On the first Yom Kippur, the Jewish people were granted atonement for worshipping the golden calf. This sin was committed on the 17th of Tammuz, but the forgiveness did not come until Yom Kippur, some 80 days later. How did the Jews know that they had in fact returned to Hashem's favor? According to the Midrash, Hashem commanded the Jews to build a Mishkan, which is the tabernacle, immediately after Yom Kippur. Once they were told to build this repository for Hashem's presence, they knew that they were back in Hashem's good graces the sukkah is a miniature version of the tabernacle in that it too serves as a dwelling place for the divine presence. For this reason, the Talmud refers to to it as Hashem's home. Thus, by beginning to build our sukkah immediately after Yom Kippur, we give a vivid demonstration that our sins were indeed forgiven on that awesome day, and Hashem has accepted us. The relationship between Yom Kippur and Sukkot can be clarified clarified further by examining precisely how the first Yom Kippur served to restore the Divine Presence, what happened on that day to allow for the forgiveness of the Jewish believers' sins. We must bear in mind that, among other things, Yom Kippur was the occasion when the Jews received the Torah for the second time. The original transmission was on Shavuot, was later marred by the shattering of the Lukos, which was the tablets. When Moses descended from Mount Sinai to find the nation sunk in the worshiping of the golden calf. Now, 80 days later, Moshe came down again bearing a second Lukos, tablets, giving Yom Kippur the status of a second Shavuot. King David had this parallel in mind in the following verse from the Psalms, 68, 19. You, Moshe, attended, ascended to the heavens. You captured booty." which is uh, basically you obtained the Torah. You received a gift for man, which is the Torah, so that even the rebellious can dwell with God. Do you see Messiah in this? This verse refers to Hashem's gift of the Torah to the repentant Jewish people on Yom Kippur. After sinning with a golden calf, the Jews were in danger of forfeiting their special relationship with the Almighty. Nevertheless, in an act of divine grace, Hashem offered them the Torah a second time, not on the basis of their merit, but as a divine gift, an expression of His overwhelming benevolence. Not only was the Torah given on that Yom Kippur, the one who gave the Torah in the form of the divine presence as symbolized in the Sukkah also came to dwell among His people, just as Yeshua did. The sukkah. Okay, I got pictures of sukkahs. So I think that, yep. the sukkah is the humble dwelling of royalty. The sukkah's message is one of humility, of a people shorn of pride. by Yom Kippur, described by the Torah as a day on which the soul is humbled. The Talmud declares that the divine presence cannot dwell in the same world as a haughty person, for ha- Hashem epitomizes humility. After the soul-searching of Yom Kippur, the contrite Jew emulates his creator. He, too, can no longer bear to live in a world populated by the haughty. Instead, he needs an isolated lodging, a home sealed off from the impurities of humankind. By choosing to dwell in the sukkah, and thus secluding not only Hashem, but also Moshe, the most unassuming of men, Moshe received the Torah in heaven after 40 days on Mount Sinai, in the company of the Almighty. In his humility, Moshe was uneasy in the world of vanity to which he returned. Following this example, Israel, the humblest of nations, needs to be sheltered from the arrogance of this world. It needs the Sukkah. The Sukkah and the Shabbat, a taste of the world to come. The Sukkah represents not only a place of honor in this world, but also a taste is what to be found in the world to come. In fact, the Talmud refers to the reward given to the righteous in the hereafter as a Sukkah. During the year, we are too engrossed in the material pursuits to be able to focus on our attention to the world to come. However, after the spiritual purification of Yom Kippur just days before, we greet the Sukkah with an elevated sense of what awaits us in life. The Sukkah represents the dream of the world to come, the Olam Chabad, in that it constitutes one place on earth that can provide shelter from the temptations of the material world. For this reason, the Sukkah finds a parallel in the otherworldly spirit of Shabbat. Amidst the drudgeries of the workday week, Shabbat offers a rarefied respite, a special period when the soul can emerge refreshed and, and, and just invigorated with the fragrance of the world to come. It's a reminder of the temple. The sukkah is also a reminder of the home in which Hashem's presence was keenly felt. The temple. The com- contemplative believing, believer or Jew sitting in a sukkah is reminded of the magnificence of the sukkah, has, I'm sorry, has no Falais, the falling center of spiritual splendor. This may be the origin of the widespread custom of decorating the sukkah with pictures of the temple. If y'all notice, we have pictures of the temple in Jerusalem in our sukkah. Thanks to Rabbi Rene. Just as Hashem resided in the temple, the Torah says, Build for me a sanctuary, and I will dwell in your midst. That's in Shemos 25.8. So does he dwell in the sukkah. Other associations think the sukkah in the temple. The sukkah has the potential to unite all the Jewish people. Similarly, the Holy City of Jerusalem, and especially the Temple, contributed greatly to Jewish unity. This being the case, why do we not mourn the destruction of the Temple on Sukkot instead of rejoicing? Why is Sukkot, Sukkot called the time of our rejoicing? We do, of course, mourn the destruction of the Temple every year on Tish, tish On Sukkot we assume a different perspective and concentrate on the positive. We thank Hashem for giving us the spiritual splendor of the Temple and show our appreciation for the time we are granted to to enjoy the Divine Presence. This upbeat attitude reflects our quiet confidence that as soon as we merit it, the Temple would be rebuilt again. This time, by the triumphant return of Mashiach ben Yehuda, which is Yeshua. We as Messianics understand Sukkot and the Sukkot, the sukkah, to be rejoicing because we are anticipating the Messianic era being ushered in during this time of year. And the Jews will be, I mean, some Jews already do, but the Jewish community will too at some point. The sukkah, a reminder of Israel's initiative in the wilderness. In order that your generation shall know that I made the children of Israel dwell in sukkahs when I brought them out of Egypt, This is uh, in Viacra 23.43. In this verse, Hashem instructs the Jewish people to remember throughout their history that He made them dwell in Sukkot upon leaving Egypt. For what purpose must we constantly recall this wilderness experience? Perhaps our annual celebration of Sukkot commemorates not only the divine protection that the generation enjoyed, but also their willingness to set out into the treacherous wilderness of Hashem's bidding at Hashem's bidding. In other words, they had no idea what was, what was coming. This leap of faith came even before they had the sophisticated understanding of the Torah and their blind obedience was, was rewarded by Hashem's protection from all harm through this divine cloud. Our annual pilgrimage to the Sukkah teaches us that while Hashem yearns to perform kindnesses to his people he delights even more when we ourselves take the initiative to seek out His protection and blessings. The Sukkah and the Primacy of Spiritual Values The Sukkah emphasizes the spiritual aspect of the liberation from Egypt. Every time we sit in the Sukkah, we are reminded of the Divine Cloud and its lesson regarding the Primacy of Spiritual Values. Hashem commands must be followed regardless of any immediate or long-term consequences. The souk is also a bridge to Gan Eden, the Garden of Eden. In the aftermath of Yom Kippur, as Israel's sins stand forgiven, we desire to build a new world, a world far removed from the vanities of daily living. This world is reminiscent of the serenity that Adam and Eve enjoyed in Gan Eden and built on the fundamental value of kindness. This new, kindness-saturated world has its own sterling heroes, Those include Abraham and Aaron. Abraham and Aaron were unique in their ability to bridge the gap between this world and the world to come, the olam haba. Abraham, waiting for guests in the blazing heat just days after his circumcision, is depicted as sitting at the opening of the tent. Likewise, Aaron, before he was initiated into the priesthood, watched for seven full days at the opening of the sanctuary while his brother Moshe performed the dedication ceremonies. This was in Viacra 835. This parallelism is more than coincidental. Both sat in openings because both were openers, personalities who bridged the gap between this world and the olam haba, the world to come. Do you see Messiah in that? A symbol of man's potential growth, potential foregrowth. The Sukkah reminds us of man's capacity to rise from the lowest depths to the highest peaks in mere moments. If one truly wishes to come closer to Hashem, let us consider the first time that the term Sukkah is mentioned after the Exodus, when the divine cloud first descended over the Jewish people. The Torah describes this moment as a journey from Ramses to Sukkot in Shemmos 1237. This can be understood not only as a journey from one physical location to another, but also a rapid yet profound spiritual metamorphosis from the abject slavery to the supreme protection of the divine cloud, which first occurred on Sukkot. The Sukkah is a home of peace, shalom. In a world torn by strife, the Sukkah epitomizes peace, shalom. For those of us that have learned this word, uh, we English, trans- or we translate the word um, shalom as peace. But it's so much more than that. It's like a wholeness. It's like a completeness. It's it's something that that really the English language doesn't have any any way to describe God's shalom. It's a beautiful, beautiful word. The sukkahs. Antecedent, the divine cloud, was sustained through the merit of Aaron, whose mission was one of shalom. The expression, spreading the canopy of peace, is used repeatedly in connection with the sukkah. Um, many of us that were here on Yom Kippur watched a movie up here called "Ushpazim." Ushpazim is just saintly guest. The sukkah and its saintly guest, we always welcome in some saintly guest in the sukkah. You shall sit in your sukkah for seven days. This verse can be interpreted as a reference to the Jewish people's ability to not only dwell in the sukkah, but also make it a habitat for Hashem and his saintly guest, known as Ushbazim. Come and see when a person sits in the house of faith, the sukkah. Hashem spreads his wings from above, and Abraham and five other righteous ones live with him. King David is also included among them. A person should rejoice every day when these, with these guests in their sukkah. That's from the Zohar, Imur 103b. Every time one sits in the sukkah, he merits the presence of Hashem and the Ushbazim, the saintly guest. What is the significance of these guests? And was, is this a quality that, that they added to the sukkah? A careful examination of the Zohar's text here reveals an emphasis on the ability of every believer to welcome such prestigious guests into their home. By observing the commandment of the sukkah, we bring godliness to earth. When we have these holy guests join us in our sukkah, we are in effect causing Hashem himself to, re- to reside with us." It is a link to Hashem's throne. What's the re- relationship between the sukkah and the heavenly throne? The Talmud, Yom 86a, relates that repentance has such a powerful impact on the celestial sphere that it reaches as far as the heavenly throne. Repentance is such a powerful thing. In the aftermath of Yom Kippur, it can truly be said that all who have repented and that the new repository for their souls, the Sukkah, reaches all the way to the heavenly throne. This link with the Almighty protect the Jewish people on Sukkot. Yeshua is our link to the heavenly throne. Was Yeshua born in a sukkah during Sukkot? Rabbi Rene and I have discussions about this from time to time. You, um, there, th- there is the thought that, that uh, Yeshua was born on the beginning of Sukkot, Teshri 15. Well, there is some scriptural evidence that that could be possible. FFOZ, the first roots of Zion, has some excellent teaching on this topic. What is not in debate is that the majority of the major events in Yeshua's ministry coincide with the Moedim, appointed times of the Lord. Many events in the patriarchs' and prophets' lives also coincide with the Moedim. In the Gospels, John the Immerser comes in the role and spirit of Elijah. Jewish tradition maintains that Elijah will appear at Passover to announce the coming of the Messiah. For that reason, we read Malachi's prophecy about the coming of Messiah on the Sabbath before Passover, and Jewish homes set a place at the Passover Seder table for Elijah. If John the Immerser is the Elijah to come, as it says in Matthew 11:14, 14, it's not, reasonable, uh, not unreasonable to assume that his birth took place at an appointed time, the time of Passover, and if John the Immerser was born on Passover, then the Master would have been born six months later at the onset of Sukkot. The marriage of Hashem and man. The exodus from Egypt can be considered the betrothal of Hashem and the Jewish people as indicated by the verse in Vayikra 22 33 30 I'm sorry, 32-33, I shall be holy in the midst of the children of Israel, I am Hashem. Who betrothed you, while taking you out of the land of Egypt, for you to be, to be you, to be for you a God? I am Hashem. The sukkah, which resembles a marriage canopy, a chuppah, may symbolize the marriage ceremony, confirming that relationship. Indeed, the beginning of Sukkot is ushered in with the Messiah betrothing his people. This is what we believe as Messianic believers, right? And the subsequent celebration that follows is eight days, which is, is likewise the pattern of a Jewish wedding, which lasts for eight days, the celebration for eight days. Um, let's talk about the species, the four species. I hope I got that. Up. Now I've got some pictures of sukkah, so here's the species here. On the first day, you're to take for yourselves a fruit from the citron tree. Hope I hope said that right. The branches of the date palms, twigs of the plated tree and brook willows and you are to rejoice before Hashem your God for seven days. What purposes do, do the four species serve? Also what does the expression take for yourself mean? These words suggest that we derive benefit to ourselves from this taking. What is it that we gain? Furthermore Why do these species engender happiness? While anyone can rejoice, especially on the festival occasion of Sukkot, joy can be merely a superficial and short-lived emotion. We can be happy one day and revert to morbidity the next day. The message of the four species and their belts, take for yourselves, is that each person had the ability to scratch below the surface and appreciate the depth of joy on Sukkot. By fulfilling the commandment of the four species properly, one causes the joy of Sukkot to penetrate penetrate into every part of your body. The aspect of peace, shalom, is related to the four species of of Sukkot. The Midrash likens the four species to various major organs of the human body. The Myrtle Leaf is shaped like an eye, and the Etrog is shaped like a heart. As the sages have taught, These two organs can unite in a perverted partnership of sin, the eye and the heart. The eye sees and the heart lusts, with the result that a person's better instincts are inundated by the power of his temptations. The willow leaf is shaped like a mouth, which is the organ of speech, which is the tool of Torah, prayer, and encouragement, But which is so often corrupted into a weapon that tears away at man's spiritual fiber. The straight tall lulav represents man's spinal column, the organ through which all the brain's impulses are conveyed to the rest of the body. By combining these species into the performance of a mitzvah, we symbolize our repentance and our desire for atonement. Every sin finds atonement when man makes a tool he once used for evil and converts it to good. One who has squandered funds on gluttony and debauchery may use his wealth to support worthy causes. One whose barbed mouth has inflicted pain on defensive victims, defenseless victims, must learn to use that divine gift of speech for holy and helpful ends. The taking of the four species which symbolize major organs represents this resolve to utilize the body and its emotional and intellectual drive for good and thereby the mitzvah as an instrument for atonement. So I've got a whole lot more here but you know I got we got started late um, and uh, we're about to to the end of our time so I'll just summarize with, with this the um, we live in, in, a, in a world of, of of a cycle patterns you know in our uh, Gregorian world we have a calendar that runs from January through December in our Hebrew world we have a calendar that runs two different ways it, in, in, in when you see the, f- the reference to the calendar in the Bible and you see the first month we're talking about the biblical calendar, which in that calendar, the first month is in Nisan. Nisan is the beginning of the festivals. Nisan is when um, Pesach, Passover, begins. So that is, that, that is the beginning of our biblical year. Well, the beginning of our calendar year begins in uh, what month? Tetre, right? No. It's the one right before Teshrei, that we celebrate Rosh Hashanah. Rosh Hashanah begins our, uh, our, our biblical calendar. So at the beginning of, of our biblical calendar, it, it, it comes to, the, to, to uh, Sukkot, and we begin our Torah cycle. So we're going to begin our Torah cycle next week. Well, actually, Monday is Simchat Torah. So you begin the Biblical calendar in Nisan, you be begin your, uh, the Torah cycle calendar after Sukkot, both of them are, are beginnings and forming cycles. The beginning of the Biblical calendar in Nisan and the beginning of the Moedim at Passover begins the pattern of spiritual renewal. Because in Pesach we have liberation, in Sukkot, w- liberation and freedom, because they were taken out of Egypt, right? In Sukkot, they were given the Torah. So now, that after traveling for, for a while and going through some preparation, they were given the Torah, which means now that they were given the rules of the game, okay? So then they, they live out the Torah. And comes, come Rosh Hashanah comes Judgment Day to see how well you did, right? And then after Rosh Hashanah comes Yom Kippur, where you're written into the book of life or written into the book of death. Sukkot is the celebration of the Lord dwelling amongst us. That's the end. That's what we the Messianic era. So each year we are given this pattern of this, these, these cycles, and we are we are to um, to understand that, you know, and everything's all tied together in scripture. It's a beautiful thing. So I'll end with that. So let's end with a prayer. Alvinu Malkenu, our Father, our King. Father, thank you so much for this glorious day, for your Shabbat, and for bringing us here on this, this, this day of blessing. Rain is blessing, Father. Be with us as we go through this day. Bless us with your presence. Draw us near to you. May each of us be safe as they come and safe as they go. In Yeshua's name I pray. Amen. Amen.